Well, good morning, church. So we are going through a series called Thinking Biblically. And this series is very important because there is a battle that is waging right now as we speak. Look around the earth for but five minutes and you will realize that something is taking place, that there are two opposing forces that are at odds with one another. And on one side, we have a system which is from God, who is the creator. We have the kingdom of God, a kingdom of truth and goodness, which gives life abundantly now and joy now and in heaven forevermore as we submit to Christ for all eternity. And that is a force of great good for humanity. But there is another system at work an evil system of this world which is controlled and directed by Satan, who is spoken of as the prince of the power of, a- of the air in Ephesians chapter 2. And the goal of this system is much different, and many follow it. And the goal is to assert lies that result in the stealing of true joy and fulfillment of mankind in God. It results in miserableness and eventual eternal judgment from God in hell. This goal is much different. And it is a hidden goal. Satan is clever in how he intends to bring this about. He does so through distorting good and evil with shrewd deceptions. But in the end, the goal of this evil system is to destroy mankind and have them in hell. And it's these two systems, the kingdom of God and the system of this world, that are at war, at odds with one another, in tremendous conflict. And thus, it is necessary for the saint to be equipped to deal with the lies of this world's system. That is why we are doing this series. We need to know how to deal with the shrewdness of Satan, and how to deal with some of these hot issues that are at play in our culture. To understand the enemy properly and to address the current issues which face the everyday man and woman, we must think biblically concerning the various lies found in our culture that are asserted by the enemy. And today, we are dealing with this particular hot issue. This topic, this issue that is at work right now in the world system, destroying and stealing as we speak. This issue that Satan has used to confuse so many. That is this issue of gender and sexuality. This gay and trans agenda we will speak of is a part of Satan's plan to distort truth and to harm humanity. Again, it is interesting, however, that this this agenda is hidden. Satan is clever in how he goes about things. He is trying to distort truth. This is at, at face value, you look at this issue, and it appears okay from the world's standpoint. There's a diluted form of courage to stand up and to uh, come out of the closet or what have you. 
There's a diluted form of tolerance that is involved here. It's mixed. Just as Satan's been lying from the beginning with half-truths and, and covertness, he's doing the same thing today, the same old schemes he's up to. It, it, it's at work with this particular issue at large. But realize, friends, that the end goal is still what we had mentioned earlier. The end goal is deception. And though people don't realize it, the end result Satan is hoping for is judgment of mankind and miserableness for all eternity. So this issue is important to discuss, because if we don't discuss it, if these are the true ramifications of not getting this issue right, then we would be fools to not discuss and clarify on this issue that Satan is so using to distort what God has intended for us. And we need to be able to articulate it clearly to others and understand it ourselves. And there are a plethora of opinions on this matter. Everybody confidently asserts they have it all figured out and stand firm on their beliefs. Everyone has become an expert on this issue in their own eyes. And what is ironic is that when everyone is an expert, really no one is an expert. We are left with a bombardment of human opinions not knowing up from down. We are left with mere opinions to sort through. Now remember, Satan is clever, and he seeks to confuse the biblical true God, the God that we serve. He seeks to bring distortion and confusion on the definition of who he is. And you can see that playing out in culture as you look around. And I want to draw one point from the very, very beginning so we are all on the same page. There are some who say God created people to be homosexual, transgender, or transsexual. And while such an assertion can be made in general about a God, a type of higher power, there is no such assertion that can be made when you are pointing at the biblical data in the Bible, what the true data has to say on the matter. So I want to, from the very beginning, draw a line in the sand and say, when people are saying God approves of these things, they are not, I repeat, they are not referencing the same God which we will be referencing this morning. Because the God we reference this morning is the God of the Bible. So I want, I, you'll hear me throughout the, the sermon, because sometimes we conflate the two when we're, we're talking with people, I want to make that clear throughout the sermon, that we are talking about the biblical God, Yahweh, not a higher power or anything of that sort. The reason when people speak of, of God generally without affirming the biblical description is that that God is actually just themselves in disguise, another human opinion that God never goes against the person who is claiming to submit to that higher power. That God always agrees with them, never challenges them, and such a God is just you. It's your own opinion. So when we are making a claim for a higher power and we're asserting that, that, that some, some God accepts this, really we are just 
another human opinion. We need a true expert on the matter if we're going to navigate this topic. We never need to let our own mere thoughts on these hot-button issues drive the conversation. That's essentially what led us into the mess we find ourselves in. Human opinion is essentially a throwaway because there are so many, and they are so wrong. We're too flawed. We're too emotional. We're too swayed. We are too sinful. We need to hear from a true expert this morning on the matter of gender and sexuality. And to do that, we, we forget human opinions. We need to go to the creator of these things, the creator of gender and sexuality, the ruler of the kingdom of God, which we, we described earlier, this, this force of great good. We need to go to the ruler. There is a ruler of that kingdom, and he has made declarations. The kingdom of God, which battles against this world system and all of its lies, has a king, and he has spoken to us through the scriptures. And he is the one who leads the charge against this world system, not us or our clever ideas. The king makes judgments on these complicated matters, and he has done so through the scripture. So we will let the king declare his own position this morning with potency and clarity through the word. So with all of this said, why don't we rise as we read several texts together? We are going to be uh, reading several passages. Uh, what is in black, I will read. What is in red, we can read together as a congregation. The Holy Scriptures say this. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. He took from his side and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned it into a woman what he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Let's read these passages together. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly lived according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. We too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and you were nature children of wrath. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the high places. Be of sober spirit, be on alert, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him firm in your faith. Let's remain standing as we go before the Lord. 
Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you now and we ask that you would make these truths come alive in our heart. O oh Lord, that the Holy Spirit, that your Spirit would be at work within us, convicting us, allowing us to see and understand truth, and filling us, God. Give us fulfillment as we submit ourselves before you this morning. Uh, Lord, and if anyone does not know you, that they would come to know you and be in this great fellowship with you. Lord, we love you, we thank you, we pray that you would transform us by the power of your word. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. So, brothers and sisters, before we address such a difficult and sensitive, um, yet timely and appropriate topic in detail, we must make some general clarifications. The enemy has so distorted so many lies and there's so many distortions, we need to clarify some things from the beginning. So here is what today is going to look like. We're going to start with some general clarifications, and then from there we are going to move to the root of the problem, and we're going to pull this thing and uproot it from the very starting point. So first we're going to deal with some general clarifications, and the first one is important, and it is this. Individuals are not the enemy. The Lord declares that man and woman, though they may not recognize themselves such as, as properly they ought, though they may sin tremendously and will be judged, are nonetheless made in the very image of the God we serve, and therefore carry a certain level of dignity that must be acknowledged regardless and independent of the issues we are going to discuss. What do I mean by this? Well, we cannot argue the true point of creation that God created the man and woman with extended vigor without also arguing just as vigorously the earlier point of verse 27 and 26 that every human carries the image of God and is made according to his likeness. Yes, there are attempts to distort this image, but those attempts are failed attempts, and they still remain as God created them in their image, whether or not that is recognized properly, you see. So, before we dive deeper into the issue, we must clarify the enemy. Individuals are not the enemy. We must remember who it is we battle against. It is not the fellow image bearer. It is something different. We talked about it earlier. It is this world system controlled by Satan, Ephesians chapter 6, 12. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. That is the enemy. Also earlier, Ephesians chapter 2. The enemy is the prince of the power of the air that is working in the sons of disobedience. The enemy is Satan. First Peter, again, we've read it together, clearly states, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We are not battling against gay and trans individuals here this morning. If that is your mindset, it is a completely unbiblical mindset. The true enemy is Satan and lies, false ideas that are asserted as true. 
Our battle is a battle for truth and a battle against lies. Not those individuals deceived by the lies. And we need to get that clear from the beginning. As Christians, we have a job, and our job is to represent Christ to the sinner and to share truth with individuals. Now, never deny calling sin sin. Call it what it is. But without the fruits of the Spirit, of which against there is no law, without prudence making knowledge acceptable, as it says in Proverbs 15, without a certain amount of meekness and humility and Christ-likeness, without a proper focus on the individual souls, we will fail at our mission. We are representatives of Christ, ambassadors of Christ. And yes, Christ acknowledged sin, but Christ is a being who came not he came to save the world. He is a being of grace and reconciliation who loves individuals and desires that they come to a true knowledge of who he is. That is the king we represent. That is the kingdom we fight for. 1 Corinthians makes this clear. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Every believer should preach the good news in this way. Representing Christ. We should all have a pastor's heart, a shepherding heart in this matter, focused on the individual, with a focus on the eternal soul before you. Realize that these souls are not mere numbers. They are people. They are people who have a destination, and they have a divine appointment, and we need to make sure that they understand the truth. And we need to present this to them. We need to plea with them to be reconciled to God. Focusing on the soul. We are not called to condemn sinners, but we are called to proclaim a message of salvation, the gospel of Jesus Christ to these people. And part, I think, of where uh, many churches have failed is that they have been deceived themselves into misidentifying the enemy. These people are not the enemy, they are the rescue mission. Furthermore, a second clarification, these sins, though we identify them as such, as sins, they are not unpardonable or unforgivable sins. We know this from texts like 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11, through 11, right? It says, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, do not be deceived, neither effeminate nor homosexual will inherit the kingdom of God, such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. The church in Corinth was filled with former sinners who practiced the sins we are discussing today. These verses clearly identify sexual sin as sin indeed. However, they are not unforgivable and there is great hope for those who practice these sins to eventually accept Christ and be washed clean and join up with our brothers and our saints from the church of Corinth. Yes, this sin is unique in its particular distortion of God's plan, 
But there is a sense in which it is very much the same as any other sin. Just as God doesn't intend for man to lie with man, he likewise doesn't intend for man to be drunk. That is not a part of his original plan for us. Neither does he intend for us to be gluttons. Neither does he intend for us to use his name in vain. All of these things are distortions of the Lord's character and are worthy of judgment. And all of these things can be paid for at the cross if we would look and accept Christ's payment. In fact, there's a great good that can come from all of this. These sins, if they are repented of, especially now in a confused world, if submitted to the Lord, make the miracle of salvation and the transformation, uh, transforming power of the Holy Spirit on display for a confused world to see truth. A unique way to bring glory to God as he makes us holy. Think about how powerful that could be and how the enemy would not want that to happen. How much clarity on God's character and creation it would be if there were repentant homosexuals and, tr and transgender. But there is perhaps a great future for those who struggle in these areas, a great opportunity to display God's power and holiness as we repent and look towards Christ and have the Holy Spirit transform us. That should shut the world right up. It's evident proof so these sins are not unforgivable by any means. One final general consideration before we move to the root of the problem, and this one is important if we truly intend to disciple those who have dealt with these issues, we must distinguish between temptation and the sin itself. And this is one that I've seen a lot of confusion on. Mere temptation is not sin. Christ himself was tempted in the wilderness by Satan in Matthew chapter 4. Therefore, it can be concluded that if indeed Christ is sinless, then being tempted is not a sin. And there is a danger even to the deity of Christ if we deny this distinction that should be made. And though it is not possible to be an unrepentant, practicing homosexual with no conviction on the matter and truly be saved, it is possible to battle same-sex temptations and the like and be striving after Jesus Christ throughout the process of sanctification in one's life. This is an important clarification to understand especially for the church at large. Because if we are truly to follow the Great Commission, we are doing more than just evangelizing people or proclaiming the gospel. We are, according to, as the great text states, discipling these people, standing side by side with them. I was moving all sorts of along. I must have been holding that button. Right here, here's the verse we were on. James chapter 1, and this is scriptural proof for it. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, as we said earlier at the beginning, it brings forth death. That is the agenda. We have all have a root of sin in our fallen nature. It can look different depending on the person. For some, it might be 
homosexuality, transsexuality, or transgenderism. For others, it could be something different. What entices and tempts, according to James 1, what says here, has its root from within the person. Each one is tempted when he is carried away by his own lusts, what they desire. James does make it clear, however, that there's a difference between temptation and sin. And we need to understand this to properly disciple, to stand side by side with struggling saints and move forward towards victory in Christ. So with James's words in mind, um, we need to, again, just address the difference between a practicing homosexual and someone who struggles with same-sex attraction. That is something that needs to be identified. Again, so we can stand side by side and help our brothers and sisters along the way as if it were any other sin. Okay, that is part of discipling. <clears throat> the difference, while heterosexual attraction can be pursued, same-sex cannot. All right, we do need to let the Bible dictate these matters and dictate how we go about discipling such people as well. So with all of these clarifications in mind, we now approach the issue itself. Now I believe Romans 1 gives us insight on where to start here. Uh, the root of these unique sexual sins is actually the rejection of truths concerning God and who he is. It is essentially the rejection of God as God. Here is what the scripture says in Romans 1, uh, in particular concerning homosexuality. It says, verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. It goes on, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their woman exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves a due penalty of their error. So according to Romans chapter 1, which remember we are letting not our thoughts dictate, but the scripture dictate these matters. According to the scripture, this mass celebration, this lack of conviction that we see in culture over sexual sins and the allowance of the sin itself is actually God's judgment to individuals for giving up and exchanging truths concerning who God is. That is the root of the problem. That is the core of the problem. The rejection of truth concerning God is the foundation of these sins themselves. If you can get people to accept the truth about God, necessarily by default, because of the logical connection of accepting God as God, these things will stop. They are tied together. The truth concerning God and these sins. God must be understood properly if we are to understand this issue biblically and be thinking biblically about this issue. When there are sins of transgenderism uh, and transsexuality and homosexuality, there is always present an exchange of truth about God. And here are three truths that are exchanged about God that must be accepted if we are to uproot these sins. The starting point, how we view God. We must recognize God is creator, that God is holy, and that God is judge. 
So we're going to look at each of these three for the remainder of this morning's message. God as the creator. The first truth that can be exchanged, and if it can be accepted, can help defeat the lies of the enemy. Genesis, <coughs> Genesis chapter 1, verse 26-27, we read earlier, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. <clears throat> to properly analyze this falsehood and deconstruct it, we must recognize a few fundamental things. First, we must recognize that identity is wrapped up in creation and the specific intent of the creator. True identity and purpose is indeed wrapped up in the will of the person doing the creating, not the will of the created thing. Let's say I wanted to make something, for example, and I have a blueprint in my mind, and I lay out the foundations and all of the specific functions that I want, and I, I create that thing with a purpose in mind. Let's say, for example, let's take Alexander Graham Bell, the inventor of the telephone. Right? He had a blueprint, a mental blueprint, a design, in order to serve the purpose of communicating over a distance with a phone. Right now, you can take all of those wires, because that's what the original one was, right? We don't have wireless. Um, we have wireless now. We didn't have it then. Take all those. You can take all those wires and wrap it up and use it to hold your luggage on top of your car. But that is not the true purpose of such things. That is not the intent of what Alexander Graham Bell had in mind. And it reflects something less than the creator's intent. So you see from our analogy, the creator, if you acknowledge God as creator, he very much does indeed get to define you. He does have say in identity, purpose, and definitions. And the biblical God, again, I word that carefully, not the higher power, the biblical God, the description of God in the Bible that Satan is actively trying to confuse people about, that God created man and woman and established marriage between them. He did not create a third sex or a fourth sex, though he is certainly powerful enough to do so. Right? He could have created uh, a completely new sex, male, female, and tree male. I don't know, he could have done it, but he didn't. And he, he chose to not do that for a specific purpose. Right? And he is the same thing with the establishment of marriage. He could have established marriage between a man and a man or a woman and a woman, but he did not. Because it is not according to his blueprint. His original intent was to create man to reflect his image. That is a distortion of his image, you see. It's not who he is. When we start saying uh, that these things are okay, we are actually making a claim about who God is, because God designed us to reflect him. That is the true root of, of most sin, if not all sin. The God described in the scripture is portraying the image of himself through the, the, the definitions that he gives in the scripture. 
Um, and we see this as far as image in the scripture as well. Mark chapter 12, 14 to 17. Then Jesus said, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? He replied, bring me a denarius. They, they brought it. He said to them, whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. You see, as creator, God has ownership rights in, just inherent of being the creator. He made the thing. You cannot merely have God the creator without God the owner. Think about it like this. If you designed a beautiful piece of art, your very own, and someone came over and took it and started repainting it, that would be, a first and foremost, a distortion of the thing you were trying to create, and moreover, an illegitimate move to claim something that does not belong to you. Moreover, when people start painting on a portrait that belongs to God, not only do they make a claim to something that's not not their own, but they insult the creator. You see how this is very much related to pointing the finger at the biblical God and saying, I am better? This has almost, I mean, it does have to do with sexual lust, but at its core, it has almost nothing to do with sexual lust. It has to do with sinful pride directed towards the Lord. They add a mustache on the Mona Lisa and say it's better insulting the creator of the masterpiece. Fallen, sinful mankind rejects not only God's standards, but they reject God himself. They, they reject him as the creator, as the owner, as the definer, and they want autonomy themselves. They want to be like God. And they improperly question God and his, his rights, what is rightfully his you know, part of being a Christian is actually giving up rights to God. We're described as slaves to God in the Scripture. Part of really understanding the Lord and having a relationship with the Lord is letting the Lord be the Lord, letting Him define things, letting Him make claims on you that you're uncomfortable with. That's the point of having a higher being, an actual higher being, not a higher being in the sense that the world uses, but a being who is better than you, who is maximally better than you. It should be uncomfortable for us. It should challenge us. Romans chapter 9, verse 20 and 21, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Does not the potter have right over the clay to make? Man seeks to deny God the right which is his, just as Satan wanted to do in Isaiah 14. I will be like the Most High. You see, at the end of the day, this all comes down to a control issue. I want to define myself. I am this way. I am that way and living as if it were so, when in reality you were meant to be none of those things and there was never in any intention on the one who created you to be those things. Defend it how you will, but at its core, this, son, this sin fundamentally remains a power struggle sin between man and God. And some who identify as homosexual, transgender, transsexual probably feel very uncomfortable 
right now, and this is exactly why. Even though we clarified intentions that they are not the enemy, even though we clarified that they are loved by God, and that you can have a true relationship with the infinite God, even though we clarified temptation versus sin, and say, hey, we see you struggling, saint. We see you struggling. Some people are still feeling very angry and personally attacked. And the reason why is when we recognize this truth that God is creator, it destroys our autonomy. It destroys how we get to define things. The reason so many feel attacked is because they know if they were to repent, it would mean being dethroned as a person who gets to define things. That is why this topic strikes a nerve. It strips one of autonomy, and how utterly un-American is that? I am free to do what I want, pursue what I want, be what I want. And such an attitude at its core is the issue itself. And we are often talking in circles in avoiding this more fundamental issue. Isaiah 29, 16, You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? Can what is made say to its maker, He did not make me? Or what is formed say to him who formed it, He has no understanding. These are all rhetorical questions with the astounding answer, no. No one can point the finger at God and say, God, your declarations, your definitions about me and mankind are wrong. You cannot do that to the biblical God. This is the true core, the true root. It is the rejection of God as God, God as creator. And these things, they are not without result. We know it is not God who becomes wrong when we begin to point the finger at him. It is us who become wrong. We become deluded and suffer the consequences. Isaiah 45.9, Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. A woe, it's a curse. It's the opposite of a blessing, and it is pronounced over those who quarrel with the maker with the one who made them. And we will talk more about what this woe might look like when we view God as judge later on. But for now, understand that implying God doesn't know what he is doing and saying, I could do a better job than the biblical God is not without consequence. So we see homosexuality, transsexuality, transgender are all fundamental rejections of God as creator and definer of all things. Next, the fundamental truth that is rejected when these sins are present is that God is holy. This is the second truth, the holiness of God. Now, when we refer to something as holy, we're saying that that thing is unique, that that thing is set apart, that is a sacred thing. So when we say God is holy, we are saying there are none like you. There is nothing on earth or in heaven that is like you, God. That is what it means to be truly holy. And God is the paradigm of holiness. There is nothing like God. So when we refer to something in holy, we mean it's sacred, special, set apart, 
And you see, there is a sense in which we bear the Lord's image, but there is also a sense in which he is infinitely different than us, just as a reflection in the mirror is infinitely different than the actual person. Right? There is something completely distinct and unique about our Lord that must be recognized. This must be recognized if we're to be fulfilled in our lives. And Satan also wants people to reject this truth as well. As mentioned earlier in the sermon, if your God never goes against what you think, your God is completely lacking this quality of distinctness and holiness. But the God of the Bible, you see, is much different. He is holy, he is distinct, he is to be obeyed and feared. Here's what it says in Revelation chapter 15, verse 4. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. According to this verse, the distinct uniqueness of the biblical God Yahweh, who we serve, his unique holiness demands fear and and glorification of himself. And notice the connection between glorify and fear. You cannot glorify him if you do not fear him. So this idea of fear we need to talk about briefly. Fear is a, basically when you say fear the Lord, that's a Hebrew expression for obeying the Lord, obedience to God, acknowledging him as who he is and acting accordingly. He is the authority, he demands obedience. That is what it means to be feared. And the way humans bring glory then, is through obedience to the Lord by putting him in his proper place, his holy place, recognizing that and submitting to his indisputable authority. You see, every ounce of disobedience in the life of any human essentially stems from a lack of proper recognition for the holiness of the Lord. Remember the sin of Romans 1. We didn't uh, read it, but the sin before the Lord says, all right, I'm going to give you to a depraved mind, was exchanging God for idols. Was idolatry taking him off the holy set-apart throne, the sacred throne, and, and putting something else there. Not thus recognizing God for who he is. They didn't see him as special That is why this message is important. In culture, you see, there is a trading of the true biblical description of the unique God, Yahweh, for this false version, this false God that demands nothing of us, that bows down to our our thoughts, that never challenges us. And such a God is, in fact, not special, holy, or unique in any way, shape, or form. Nothing sacred about such a God. But the God of the Bible, he is holy and he is perfect. And his holiness demands we glorify him through obedience. As Revelation 15 indicates, he is perfectly holy, perfectly right all of the time, including on these issues of gender and sexuality that we discuss this morning. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now, When a Hebrew repeats something, that means it's pretty important. 
right? Jesus did this often when he was teaching, truly, truly, I say to you, right? He would say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me, right? He would repeat things that are important, and this is repeated three times. That doesn't mean this is just important. That means this is the ultimate. This is supreme. This is complete. Holy, holy, holy. It is a superlative. The best. You cannot think of anything holier. He is by which all holiness is measured. He is by which all goodness is measured. The Lord himself is the embodiment of what it means for something to be set apart. Perfectly holy in every way. Unable to make a mistake, even regards to the, in regards to these issues that we discussed this morning. Again, these sins are rooted in a lack of recognition of this truth. When one begins to change God's perfectly, beautifully painted portrait, one is denying the Lord's perfection and holiness of God and all that he does. He is described as holy. He's actually described as so holy, in fact, that he cannot even look upon evil. Habakkuk uh, chapter 113, your eyes are too holy to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. The biblical God we discuss today cannot approve evil, for he himself is the embodiment of perfect goodness. The Lord only looks upon things, think about too this, what it means to bear his image, it means it looks like him. He only looks on things favorably that resemble his own nature and character. He cannot do otherwise. The unique sacred standard by which all mankind must be measured against. Many translations say his eyes are too pure to look upon evil. And what does it mean for something to be pure? It means that it is unmixed. If I have pure water, it is complete water. No dirt is mixed in there. And if I have God, who is only able to look on pure things, he is only able to look on things that are resembling of his own goodness, his own purity, unmixed with the filth of this world. God's eyes are too pure to see favor in things that don't reflect his own nature. And some might say, oh, that seems very arrogant. But if God truly is the greatest satisfaction in this life, the greatest fulfillment, it is nothing but generous that he claim and demand we worship him and be holy and reflect him properly. He cannot look on evil with delight, including the changes that humanity is making to his grand portrait that he created of sexuality. Just like a married bachelor, there is no such thing as a true biblical version of God that approves evil, as defined in the Bible. He will not and cannot call something objectively uh, repulsive pleasant. He cannot do that. He is a being of perfect truth, for it goes against his nature to do so. And nothing is truly pleasant or good unless it comes from his mind or nature. Thus, we must submit to his blueprint and his design. 
He is the Holy One, the paradigm of perfection. His holiness and His purity is tied to the fact that He Himself is this perfect standard of goodness. And this happens whenever someone objectively affirms good or evil, say, oh, it's, it's good to give or it's bad to steal. That person, whether or not they realize it, again, is making a claim about what God is like and setting up a standard that is or isn't true. And the only true standard is the Bible in that matter. And the evil is anything contrary to his nature. To say anything apart from God, who is the paradigm of goodness itself, the standard by which everything is measured, is good. To say anything apart from that is good. You just don't understand what good is. (laughs) That's why it's important to define these sexual sins as sins this morning. For if we do not, they attempt to rob God of his own holiness and being the unique standard and leave humanity confused about who God is. That, again, is the agenda of the enemy, to make as many people possible see God as ordinary rather than holy, rather than the standard of perfection and goodness that he is. And the God of the Bible, not, not the God created by delusions, but the God of the Bible is a holy God who cannot look upon evil, and he will not look upon anything that is not reflecting himself properly. And that is scary news for individuals who are buying Satan's lies and who are painting on the per- perfect picture of who God is. Because it means he cannot have a relationship with you. And everyone states, you know, oh, I was born this way, I can't change, it's who I am, it's a part of me. Now let me be charitable with you and grant that maybe perhaps due to the fall you may be born with some particular tendency. Uh, Let's just grant that fact for the sake of argument. That tendency, again, is no defense for the rebellion against the Lord. And, and, the, and pursuing the actions themselves. You are distinct from your tendency. Birth or not really makes no difference. I say this all to warn, just don't use tendencies improperly tied to your identity with no strict logical connection as an excuse not to respect the holiness of the biblical God and his definitions of good. Instead of saying, we are who we are and the Lord better change, we should be saying, God is holy and He is who He is, the great I am, and it is we who must change. God is the one who is who He is, the great I am. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will not change. If we don't recognize sin is sin and begin to turn and repent and change our mind about these things and accept the salvation offered in Jesus and let him transform us, there is judgment for such a delusion. It is not a crime with no guilt. Okay, there is mental rejection of the Lord. And though Christ, uh, Christ, we just must accept him and allow him to transform him to transform us. If we do not, there is nothing but judgment that awaits, which is the last truth. It says truth two. This is truth three. Truth three, God is judge. 
Acts chapter 17, verse 30 to 31, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. That's Jesus. And even right now this morning, God is still calling sinners to repent, to turn from your sin, and, and to call out for the salvation that the Lord offers. All people, this includes people who are dealing with all of these issues we have been discussing this morning. Verse 30 is now. He is calling out to you to repent, to change your mind first and foremost about who He is and to accept Christ as a payment, as a covering for those very real sins and rebellions against Him. But if you do not do that, if you do not accept these ultimate truths concerning Jesus Christ and concerning your sin, then verse 31 comes into play. There will be a day where the true Lord of the Scriptures, whether you recognize Him or not, will say to the unrepentant, I have been rejected as your Lord, for you defined yourself, you stripped me of my right as creator, defamed my holy name, and refused to repent, and therefore there is a payment that is due to me for your delusions, for your suppressions of the truth, and for denying me the right of what is mine. The one who will judge is none other than Jesus Christ himself. And the pe people have this idea that Jesus is just a, a lovey-dovey grandpa figure or something, something of the like. Total acceptance and love all the time. And while it's true that God is love, the converse, love is God, is not true. There are many more aspects to Jesus, though all of what love is truly is embodied in him, but there are other aspects about Jesus that need to be recognized, and one of them is the fact that he will judge the sinner. The risen Christ will judge us one day. We see this uh, again uh, mentioned in John chapter 5, verse 22, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgments to the Son. Jesus, though he seeks a relationship with us, is holy and cannot look upon sin and must judge sin according to the Father's will. We talk Bible here, not human feelings. The biblical description, the reality, is the biblical Jesus spoke of hell more than anyone else in the Bible and even describes it oftentimes much more vividly than he does heaven. And there are so many text where you can find this. Luke 16, it describes a great chasm which none may cross over. Once you're done with this life, you will be judged. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it is appointed for men to die once. That word once is also important because some people think, oh, it's fine. God's so loving, he'll eventually, he does not go against his word. If he says once, he means once. Once you are dead, after this comes judgment. Matthew 13, 42 describes hell as a place where people are gnashing their teeth in anguish and regret. That's a sign of great regret as well. There will be sorry, but it's too late. 
Today is the day of salvation. Some who are listening might feel the Holy Spirit's conviction, but they're holding, holding on, saying, oh, maybe later, maybe later. Not everyone has the luxury of knowing when we're going to die. Who knows what happens on the road with all these crazy drivers? Who knows what will happen? Which is why it's important to look at the gospel. And the gospel is this, that every human has failed at bearing his image. Every human, not just homosexuals or transgender, every human has rejected that, those truths that we went over at some point today. Every human has tried to strip God of what is rightfully due him and have failed. But there is good news because God loves us. Because God wants to make things right. He himself came down and died the death, paid the penalty that is justly due. That must, that has to be paid. He paid it himself. That we may be transformed and like him and fulfilled in him and spend eternity with him. Because he loves us. This God who we spit in the face of, he extends a hand. He extends an olive branch to you this morning and says, please accept this. He wants relationship with you. And moreover, the proof that all of this is real, Jesus Christ, after he made the payment, rose from the dead, proving he was the God who could forgive sins. He can forgive your sins this morning, no matter what they are. If only we would see and recognize these truths. And I pray we would. Today, will you realize that rejecting truth about God is what has led to all of these sins? And would you repent of that and accept the truths we spoke of, accept God as creator, God as holy, and God as judge. There's much more to say on this topic, because I know this is a pretty big topic, and we will go further and deeper in the upcoming weeks, but know that the root of these sins is all a lack of recognition concerning who God is. So I pray we would look at him as he truly is, the biblical description of who he is, and accept that. And secondly, will you realize that this world is engaged in a spiritual warfare and that your eternal souls are the spoils of victory? Which side will you fall on? The evil system of this world that leads to judgment, that the one controlled by Satan trying to deceive in so many ways, or the system, the holy kingdom of God of truth and goodness? They both end up two very different places. Which one will you fall on? Which system do you support? What are you thinking? Are you thinking biblically about the gay and trans agenda? Let's bow our heads and pray. Um, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. Lord, we pray that there is clarity here and where maybe I wasn't clear, your Holy Spirit the, the true teacher was clear in people's hearts, Lord. Oh, and Lord, that we would dig deeper in your scripture concerning these matters, that we would acknowledge you as God and allow us to be transformed 
every day as we continue to learn more about who you are. Lord, we pray for those who do not know you, that they would repent, that they too would recognize these truths and enter into an eternal kingdom with you forevermore. Lord, let us live lives as representatives of you this week and for all of our life. In Christ's name we pray, amen.